Well, good morning. Um, this morning we're going to look at uh, Ezekiel chapter 5. We'll be in Ezekiel chapter 5 this morning. Um, but before we get there, a couple things to share with you. One, uh, that, that check trip dinner is sold out. Um, that is a really neat thing. That with 176 tickets were sold in the course of three weeks there, and so we're looking forward to a really fun night. Um, if you're still interested in finding ways to help uh, the students go to the Czech Republic, uh, talk to me. There's, there's a couple other ways that maybe you could help um, other than attending the dinner. So if you want to know more about that, ask me. Um, and then uh, the other thing I wanted to share with you is uh, I didn't share at this service last week. I, I don't know. My brain wasn't functioning as well as I think it could have been. But uh, my daughter, Cora, uh, had appendicitis last week. So Friday night we went into the hospital. Uh, she had uh, surgery to remove her appendix at... Uh, somewhere around midnight on Friday, so Saturday morning. And then uh, Saturday day itself was a really rough day. Um, we later on had a, had a, a friend uh, who's a doctor. I asked him if he'd stop by and just, not that we don't trust our doctor, but I trust you more. Will you tell us how she's doing? And uh, he had had appendicitis last year as well as his son. And he said where she's at is right where she should be. Um, he said mine didn't burst, neither did my son's. Hers did, so she's going to take a little bit longer to heal. But anyway, Cora is doing well. Uh, Saturday was a very trying day. Uh, if you've ever had a child uh, hurt to the level that that hurts, uh, it's nearly impossible to be there. Um, and uh, I would have done anything to take it away. Uh, but you can't do that. So uh, she's healing well, and uh, we appreciate prayers. There was a lot of support. Uh, I think her stuffed animal collection quadrupled this week. Um, and she's not upset about that. But uh, it, it, it's, been, it's, been a, it's been a long process. We're only just a week into it. But, uh, and, and three or four more weeks, she'll be, they say she'll be back to normal. But uh, um, just thank you for those of you who prayed. Uh, she got lots of cards, support, again, uh, chocolate, stuffed animals, all that stuff. It, it meant a lot to her um, and was encouraging to us. Uh, so that's, that's, that's where sort of we are as a family. Uh, my head is mostly screwed on straight. Um, the preparation for this week was different than any week that I think I've ever had in preparing a message. So uh, we're going to jump into this, though, Ezekiel chapter 5. Uh, last week we were in, in chapter 4, and in chapter 4 we saw the key word there in that chapter was the word iniquity. And iniquity, um, it, means, it means to be bent or crooked, it means to be irritated or confused. And when the scriptures talk about iniquity, it's talking about uh, our, our core, our, our nature, our, the very core of who we are is bent and crooked, it's irritated and confused. We're not as God intended us to be uh, because of the fall, because of the individual choices and because of the nature, uh, our, our lineage in Adam, we're born um, not as we ought to be. This week, the key word is going to be rebellion. Uh, and what we're going to see is rebellion covers both attitude and actions. And where the nation of, of Israel, and then the, the one we're looking at here, more in particular, Israel had split uh, into Israel and Judah. The nation of Judah, God's people had become, uh, they'd become obstinate. Uh, I don't know if you've ever dealt with something that's obstinate, but they're just, just digging their heels in. Um, and they're going to do what they're going to do no matter what. Um, and they were uncooperative in their attitude, and their actions demonstrated that attitude towards God. And that's really what you see leading into this. I'll share a little bit more about that. But uh, one of the things that I think is really important to understanding this chapter is that God is a, is a God of covenants. Uh, he makes promises with groups of people, and then He, he fulfills those. Um, and if you were to read Leviticus chapter 26 and read uh, Ezekiel chapter 5, you would realize that Ezekiel is spelling out the curses 
of Leviticus chapter 26. When God makes a, a covenant there, he, he says, if you do these things, uh, I'm going to respond to you this way. And if you do these things, I'm going to respond to you in a way that you're not going to enjoy quite as much. And, and the nation had reached a point where he was going to keep his end of the bargain, but it was the end of the bargain that uh, you, you'd rather he didn't keep. Um, and that's, that's really what we see happening here, is God's people have rebelled against him so greatly um, that he's going to keep his promise. He's going to keep his covenant promises uh, that if you rebel against me, I will respond to you this way. Uh, if you don't have that context, it might look like God is sort of... Uh, capricious. He, he's, he's, he's coming up with his response on the spot. Well, you're doing that. I guess I'll just do this. You ever been there as a parent or a, an employer or something? Somebody does something and you, you weren't prepared for it, and then you respond with something that maybe wasn't the best response. Um, that's not what God is doing. He said, if you do this, I am going to respond to you this way. And now we're seeing it take place in Ezekiel chapter 5. Um, now, Ezekiel is, is playing something out here. Throughout this, he's, he's basically doing a uh, a monologue uh, where he's, he's showing people what God is going to do. And so if we look at uh, verses 1 through 4, we see the first bit of this. He says, As for you, son of man, take a, a sharp sword, take it and use it as a barber's razor on your head and beard. Then take, this, then take scales for weight and divide the hair. One third you shall burn in the fire at the center of the city, when the days of the siege are completed. So he, the previous chapter, he told him, lay on this side for this many days, lay on that side for that many days. When that's completed, I want you to do this with your hair. Then you shall take one-third and strike it, um, then you shall take one-third and strike it with the sword all around the city, and one-third shall scatter in the wind. I will unsheath my sword behind them. Also take a few in number from them and bind them in the edges of your robes. Take again some of them and throw them into the fire and burn them in the fire. From it, a fire will spread to all the house of Israel. So a couple things going on here. He's, he tells them to take a, a sharp sword and, and do some shaving. Um, I see a few of you in here that need to do the same thing. Um, my, dad, my dad is one of those guys where if you let your hair grow on your face at all, he has some remarks for you about uh, why you shouldn't do that. Um, but uh, I've never done it with a sword. Um, I've never taken a sharp sword to shave. This sounds like quite a task. Uh, but the shaving of the head and beard was a pagan ritual that was actually something that they did for the dead. Um, and it was the Deuteronomy chapter 14 said, you're not going to do that. The nations around you might do that. You don't. Um, it was a sign of humiliation and disgrace. You can see that in 2 Samuel chapter 10. Um, if an Israelite priest, which is what Ezekiel is, shaved his head, he was defiled and no longer holy uh, to the Lord. You see that in Levit Leviticus chapter 21. So Ezekiel defiles and humiliates himself as a symbol of the humiliation that the Judeans who are defiled are, are, and are no longer holy to God. He's showing them this is who you are through this action. This is who we are as a nation. We're, we're defiled and we're humiliated. Uh, we've lost our land. We don't have control of our land. They were still in their land at this point, but their king was just a puppet. He didn't have the ability to make any decisions. He just did whatever Babylon said. They were humiliated. And then what you see is that Ezekiel, all he can really do is mourn the death of his nation. He, he, there's no saving it at this point, but he's showing them where they are. 
Now the hair itself, it symbolizes the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Uh, as Jerusalem burns after the siege, one-third of the people will die. Some of these will have already died through famine and distress in the siege. Uh, a second third of the inhabitants will die by sword when Jerusalem falls, and a third will be scattered in the wind into exile. A portion of that group will then again be judged by fire while they're in exile. Uh, they're not protected as they're in exile. Um, as they leave Jerusalem, uh, and, and they'll die by the, and some will die by the sword in captivity. And then a final third, the Lord will deliver. From this final third, not, not a whole third of them, but from that final third, the Lord will deliver a remnant of citizens as depicted by Ezekiel's uh, securing a few, in the, in, a few hairs in, in the, the hem of his, his robe. It was kind of like pockets for them, basically. He puts some of the hair in his pockets. And God would, he would, he would keep a remnant. And you see that God does that throughout, throughout history, throughout church history, throughout uh, the nation, uh, throughout the history of the Jewish nation. Uh, he always keeps a remnant of faithful believers. But what's interesting is it's not the believers' actions that make them faithful. It's the fact that God is sovereign and He keeps, he keeps a remnant. He, he, he hangs on to His promises. He's going to see a group of these people through, and He's going to bless the world through this, through this nation. That's what He promised to Abraham, that I will make a mighty, I'm going to make a great nation of you, and through your descendants, I'm going to bless the entire world. God is keeping His promises. He's keeping multiple promises. He's keeping that one to Abraham, that He will bless all the world through Abraham's descendants. But He's also keeping the promises to, uh, in the Mosaic Covenant, where if, if, you, if you live this way, you'll receive, receive blessing. If you follow Me and recognize Me as God and find your life in Me and remember who I am, you'll receive blessing. But if you, if you don't follow Me and you reject Me, I'm gonna, I have a promise for you that I'm going to discipline you. And the discipline is what the nation is receiving at this point. But God is keeping His promises. And so what we see in that is that rebels receive judgment. These people have rebelled against God. Uh, they've stiff-armed Him. They've pushed Him away. They've decided that they're going to do things their way. Uh, they're no longer going to follow their king. And what we see is that the king judges, but he also is showing some grace and mercy. The fact that he's even keeping a remnant, that's grace. That's mercy. Uh, mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. And then there's a remnant that aren't going to get what they deserve. He's, he's going to withhold the punishment that's due to them. And there's a remnant that's going to receive His grace. They're going to receive uh, from Him something uh, th that they don't deserve. So mercy is, I, I, you deserve this and I'll keep it back from you. Grace is, you don't deserve this, but I'll give it to you. And he's doing both of those things. He's withholding the punishment that's due to this remnant, and then he's giving them something they don't deserve. So the, the, the rebels, they receive judgment, and the king, uh, our God, he is also showing grace and mercy. Now in verses 5 through 8, we see that the attitude, what is, what is the attitude of a rebel? How is that defined? Verse 5 says, Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem, I have set her at the center of nations with lands around her, but she has rebelled against me. My ordinances, which are his decisions or uh, uh, basically his diagnosis, uh, this is what's right, this is what's wrong. But she has rebelled against me and my ordinances, what I declare to be right and wrong, more wickedly than the nations against more wickedly than the nations, and against my statutes, which would be like his prescriptions. So ordinances are, here's what's right and wrong, and statutes is, this is how you keep 
right and wrong. And he says they've rebelled against all of that. They've rebelled against my description of right and wrong, and they've rebelled against uh, how I say you should carry out right and wrong. And they've done this more than the lands which surround her, for they have rejected my ordinance and not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have... Because you have more turmoil than the nations which surround you, and have not walked in my statutes, nor observed my ordinances, nor observed uh, the ordinances of the nations which surround you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, am against you, and I will execute judgments against you in the sight of the nations. So there's a couple key things when we talk about the attitude of a rebel. Uh, one is that uh, when he, he uses that word in verse 6, he says, But she has rebelled against me. Uh, against my ordinances. Uh, that word rebel, that has an idea of attitude and action. Uh, it, it's, it's my attitude is against you. I don't know if you've ever rebelled against somebody. Um, I can think of a couple places in my life where I did this. Um, where uh, and, and my rebellion was probably more uh, uh, sneaky than in their face. Um, but there was times where somebody was in a position of authority over me. I didn't like the way they were ruling. Um, and so instead of coming under them and being obedient, I sort of had this sneaky thing where I rejected what they had to say, uh, what their, their definition of right and wrong was, I rejected it, um, and I also rejected what, how they would prescribe I should live or, or do something. Um, one of these was a baseball coach. Uh, I, I did not care for the way that he, he ran the team, um, and instead of Submitting to his leadership, I just said, no, I'm going to do this my own way. I reject his definition of how I should be carrying myself on the field, and I reject his definition of some other things, and I'm going to do this my own way. And, and, and what that does is it causes a lot of turmoil. Now, sometimes we rebel, and it's against a tyrant, right? When, the, when you look at the Decla Declaration of Independence, they, they, were, they were stating their rebellion against the King of England, but they were doing, a, doing so against a tyrant. That was literally the language that they used. We're rebelling because of these tyrannical actions, right? But that's not who God is. Um, he's not a tyrant. He's, he's a loving Father. He's a God who has made promises, and, and those promises, he, he says, I'll bless you if you stay inside of my design, and if you go outside of my design, I will discipline you. That is, the curse is discipline. I'm going to discipline you. And so he's this loving God. He's not, a, he's not a tyrant, but he's a loving God who's laid out ahead of time. Uh, there's, no, there's no ambiguity in God's love for us and how he would discipline us. One of the hardest things in parenting is, is to lay out exactly what's going to happen if you rebel against me. And, and there are places where you, you've laid it out, and there are other places where you don't know enough to even understand how to respond. God is not that way. He always knows how to respond. He's always laid out ahead of time how he's going to respond. And so this isn't some tyrant, but this is a loving Father, uh, an amazing God who knows everything about us and how to care for us. But that word rebelled, is, is, it's an attitude of, I will no longer follow you. I'm not going to listen anymore. So that's the first part about it. I'm not going to listen anymore. And then in that same verse, it says they have rejected my ordinances and not walked in my statutes. They've rejected it. I, I've, I'm, this is my attitude. My attitude is I will not listen to you. And even more than that, I will push you away from me. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to listen and, and I will push you away from me. And in verse 8, we see God's response to being pushed. 
You push him away long enough, and he says, Behold, I, even I, am against you. I will execute my judgments against you in the sight of the nations. Now, there's an interesting thing that goes on with Israel here is, or, and, and Judah is that uh, they're not keeping God's uh, decisions about right and wrong, um, and they're not walking in His statutes. So they ignore His ordinances. This is right. This is wrong. Uh, they ignore His prescriptions. This is how you ought to live. But they're also, they, don't even, they don't even keep right and wrong as well as the nations around them. He says, because you have more turmoil than the nations which surround you and have not walked in my statutes, nor observed my ordinances, nor observed the ordinances of the nations which surround you. So even the common good that every man understands, you're ignoring that. This is how far they had gotten from him. And when they get this far, this is when he executes his end of the, of the covenant where he says, if you rebel, it, this is the curse. I am going to discipline you. But this attitude of the rebel is, is I will not listen to you and I will push you away. I'm not going to pay attention to you anymore, God, and I am pushing you away. And then we begin to see some of the actions of a rebel. Verses 9 through 11, the actions of a rebel are defined. He says, and because of all your abominations, I will do among you what I have not done, and the like of which I will never do again. Therefore, fathers will eat their sons among you, and sons will eat their fathers, for I will execute judgments on you and scatter all your remnant to every wind. So as I live, declares the Lord, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable idols and all your abominations... Therefore, I will also withdraw, and my eye will have no pity, and I will not spare. So the actions here, he describes it as abominations. Um, an abomination is something that God looks at. He sees people do something, and it literally makes him shudder. It's, it's, it's detestable. It's, it's sickening. Um, it, it, it makes him shudder, and, it, and it, it's, it's almost uh, would make him gag. God looks at an action and it's like, that is terrible. And he says, that's what you've done. And then he describes sort of their donner party moment in, in, verse, in verse 10. Fathers will eat their sons and sons will eat their fathers. Your, your food is going to be so scarce. And you have left morality of what is right and wrong, my ordinances and my statutes. You've gone so far from them um, that you'll, this is the kind of action that you would revert to in hunger. He says, because you have defiled my sanctuary with detestable idols and with all your abominations, therefore I will withdraw. You've left me, I'll leave you. My eye will have no pity and I will not spare. Uh, what's interesting is the nation of Israel would be what we would probably describe as, as a cult. Um, and now a cult is, is someone who, the Israelites, uh, the, these group of people, they believe they were rooted in the historic beliefs of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph, uh, the great kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, but they had left the life God called them to and lost sight of the greatness of God. This is what a cult does, is it, it, it takes the historical roots of a, of, of, of a religion, and they take the historical roots and they say, that's, that's us. We're Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph. We're Saul, David, and Solomon. Um, that's our history. That's our lineage. But we've ignored, we've lost sight of the life that God has for us. 
In, in passages in like Jeremiah, he says that you've dug cisterns that can't hold water. You've turned away from where you can actually get life, and you've tried to find it on your own. You've left the life that God has for you. And because you've left that, you've also lost sight of the greatness of God. Uh, you've lost sight of Yahweh. You've lost sight of the one who says, I am that I am, the self-existent one, the, the one who longs to love you and bless you and care for you. You've left me. They looked like the nations around them, and as we saw in verse 7, they were not even upholding the common decency uh, that every man knows to the level of the nations around them. The pagan nations appeared more pious than God's own possession. Those who knew nothing of God looked more pious than His own people. 2 Chronicles 33 tells us a bit about the kings of Judah and their abomination in God's sights. Uh, in verse 21 of, of uh, 2 Chronicles 33, it says, Ammon was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned 22 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight, uh, in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh his father had done, and Ammon sacrificed to the carved images which his father Manasseh had made, Assyrian gods, and served them. Moreover, he did not humble himself before the Lord as his father had done, but Ammon multiplied their guilt. It was his son Josiah that would then have the scriptures brought to him and awaken the nation for a little while. But these kings had, had just, they'd, they'd rebelled against God. They said, we're not going to, you know, we, we hold our lineage in, in Abraham, Isaac, and Joseph. We hold our lineage in Saul, David, and Solomon. And on our roots, we're Jewish. But we're not going to follow our God. We're Jewish, but we're not going to pay attention to, to, to what's right and wrong according to our God, and we're not going to walk in His statutes. We're Jewish, but we're not going to look anything like our God. They had become a cult. Ravi Zacharias says, when a Christian uses the word cult, a cult is generally defined as that which claims to be rooted in historic Christianity, but has deviated or abandoned the finished work of Christ or compromised his person. A cult is generally defined as that which claims to be rooted in historic Christianity. The, 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 work, the Bible, uh, the, the, the writings of the New Testament, the Gospels, the life of Jesus, the history of the early church, that's us. But we've abandoned or deviated the finished work of Christ. In other words, Jesus' work on the cross is not enough for me or you. You need to work hard in order to be saved. You need to do these things in order to be saved. If you're baptized, if you're this, if you're that, if you're the other thing, then you can be saved. We've abandoned or deviated from the finished work of Christ, or we've compromised the person of Jesus. He's not a God, uh, but He's actually he's just a prophet. He's not, he's not God incarnate, and the Trinity isn't a real thing, but... Uh, he's, he's, he's a great teacher, and he's someone who we can aspire to be like, and he shows us the way, uh, and he, but he's not actually God. And so there are a lot of there were there was a whole nation of people who said we're Jewish. We are Israel. We are God's own possession, but they rejected him. They rejected his person and they rejected his work of giving them life. The same thing can happen within Christianity where we say my roots are Christian. I, 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 I find my identity in the historic version of Christianity, but 
Jesus' work on the cross isn't enough. His life-giving isn't enough. I've got to do a little bit more. You've got to do a little bit more in order to receive life from from Jesus. We've abandoned or, or deviated who his work on the cross. Or we change who he is. He's not actually God. Right? And that's what they had done. These, these people had become polytheistic. They, they believed in their God, but they also worshipped Assyrian gods. They'd become polytheistic. Now, you might not think that you could fall susceptible to that because we don't name our gods anymore. They named their gods at that point in time. When they talked about Moloch, he was the god of child sacrifice. They named him. Right? When they talked about other gods, they, they had names for them. Anymore, we don't name them. But if you think that people don't worship uh, child sacrifice, you don't know the statistics on abortion. Uh, it, you know, these things still exist. We just don't name them anymore. So you have to watch out that you don't tweak who Jesus is or what he did. Can't, there's no addition to Christ's work on the cross to receive life. There's no changing his person. He claimed to be God. He proved that he was God in flesh. You cannot tweak his work or his person. The person and work of Jesus are key to salvation. He is God in flesh, and his work on the cross was sufficient to give me life. But that's where this nation had reached. A point of, we're Jewish, but we don't need God or His ways. I'm Christian, but Jesus isn't enough, and He's not quite God in my life. Verses 12 through 17, we see the judgment of the king. It says, One-third of you will die by plague and be consumed by famine among you. One-third will fall by the sword around you, and one-third I will scatter to every wind, and I will unsheath a sword behind them. Thus my anger will be spent, and I will satisfy my wrath on them, and I will be appeased. Then they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal when I have spent my wrath upon them. Moreover, I will make you a desolation and a reproach among the nations which surround you in the sight of all who pass by. So it will be a reproach, a reviling, a warning, an object of horror to the nations who surround you when I execute my judgments against you in anger, wrath, and raging rebukes. I, the Lord, have spoken. Think God likes sin or not? Think He likes rebels or rebellion? When I, send against, when I send against them the deadly arrows of famine, which are for the destruction of those who I will send to destroy you, then I will also intensify the famine upon you and break the staff of bread. Moreover, I will send on you famine and wild beasts, and they will bereave you of children. Plague and bloodshed shall also pass through you, and I will bring a sword on you. I, the Lord, have spoken." This is the judgment that will satisfy God's justice. Verse 13 is a very important verse to grab hold of. He says, Thus my anger will be spent, and I will satisfy my wrath on them. I will be appeased. The people of Jerusalem will know that the Lord has executed His wrath. The punishment is is certain. The Lord has spoken. So what does this have to do with Jesus and and, and His good news? What does this have to do with the gospel? 
this is, this is huge. When Jesus went to the cross, uh, God's anger was spent on Him and God's wrath was satisfied on Christ. He was appeased. Propitiation, the satisfaction of God's justice, took place as Jesus died on the cross. God hates sin. And His anger is not... Not, not a momentary flash in the pan where something happens and he gets angry and reacts, but his anger is, is thought out. It's, it's, uh, it, it's in line with his character. When God gets angry, it's not some weird thing that some guy just lost his cool. It's this God who knows right and wrong, who has laid out what is good and what is bad, watches people do bad repetitively, hurt each other repetitively, gets angry at the fact that people are hurting each other repetitively, and then because he's angry at that hurt, he acts and he disciplines. There's a wage to sin. There's a cost. And when Christ died on the cross, God's anger was spent on him. His wrath was satisfied on Jesus. He was appeased. Read on, and you'll see that all these verses describe Jesus' death on the cross. A desolation and a reproach was made, among, was made of Him. Uh, a reviling and a warning, an object of horror. When people looked on Jesus on the cross, they were appalled at what they saw. They reviled Him. They poured out reviling and, 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 and uh, 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 angry language towards Him. Jesus bore all of this. And so when you see this, you see that God's, God's wrath, one, you have to understand, uh, some people might read this and go, I could never follow a God like this that could get this upset, that could, that could, that could say, uh, I'm going to cause you to, do, to, to, to take on these things. Um, I could never follow a God that would allow this kind of death and destruction, that would not just allow it, but it's, this passage kind of shows that He brings it. But that, 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 that mindset, it ignores the idea that there's such a thing as righteous judgment. It ignores the idea that there's a seriousness to sin. So when you look at this passage, you can find grace in it. The grace in this passage is that God loves us enough to not leave us in our sin. He could have left the people hurting each other over and over and over and over and over and over and done nothing. He could stand back and do nothing and just watch people destroy each other forever. Or he could step into history. In this case, he's stepping into history and he's disciplining his nature or his nation. When, we, when he steps into history through Christ, he's saving his people. He may leave us in the consequences of our sin, but not the condemnation of it. For believers, the, the end of God's judgment is heard on Christ's cry from the cross. It is finished. Many in Ezekiel's generation would pass away, but God would return to their children and grant, He would return their children and grandchildren to Jerusalem. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be part of a generation for which God is waiting to die so that He can do something with the next one. This was a generation that, that had to pass before God could actually move. But He's gracious, and He will restore the nation. He will restore His people. He will keep a remnant. 
and who fulfill His promises. God's wrath would be finished before His nation would be. That's grace. His wrath would be finished before His nation would be. He would keep the covenant He made in Leviticus chapter 26 regardless of how greatly the people rebelled against Him. God's a promise keeper. When He says He's going to do something, you can, you can count on it. So I want to take you to one more set of verses here, and it's Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23 is the crucifixion of Jesus. And in verse 33, it says, When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified Him and the criminals, one on His right and the other on His left. Now, in Matthew, when Matthew describes these criminals, he calls them robbers. He says that there's a robber on either side of Him. The word robber, it, it, it literally meant a highwayman. It was somebody, the, the literal translation was somebody who would rob people as they went up and down the Roman roads. They would, they'd stop them and they'd rob them. But what it had become synonymous with was an insurrectionist, a rebel. So you could read this and say, when they, placed, when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the rebels, one on his right and the other on his left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And they stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is Christ, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. And the soldiers mocked him, coming up, offering him sour wine, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was an inscription, there was an inscription above, above him, This is the king of the Jews. Does this sound a little bit like Ezekiel? I will make you a reproach to the nations. There will be reviling. One of the criminals, one of the rebels who hang there was hurling abuse at him, saying, You are not the Christ. Save yourself. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebel answered, rebuking him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? When Jesus went to the cross, the the Jews wanted him there because he, he made claims of deity. He blasphemed in their eyes. But the charge that they got to stick with Pilate was he's a rebel, and he's going to start a rebellion. That was what Pilate sent him to the cross for. He was the king, a rival king, and he was going to be killed as a rebel. We're under the same sentence of condemnation. Verse 41, and we indeed are suffering justly, for we receive what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying to Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's pretty easy to look at the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, and go, what a bunch of rebels. They've rejected what God says about right and wrong, and they've made a decision to go on their own. What a cult. They, they, they hold their roots in historic Judaism, but they've lost sight of the life giver, and they've changed God into somebody else. It's easy to look at somebody else and say that's who they are. But what we have to do is we have to realize that if... If, if Jesus went to the cross today, you very well could be one of the rebels hanging on the cross next to him. Because we've all rebelled against God. We've all at some point in our life said, 
I will choose what is right and wrong, and I will create my own version of deity. I'll make myself God, or I'll worship some false god. We've all done it. And so the promise here before us is that if you end your rebellion, if you look at the king and you say, I trust you and I'll follow you, he says to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. That's a promise. You end your rebellion against him and he says, today you will experience paradise. The Scriptures back that up. When you follow Jesus as Lord, you experience life eternal. Jesus describes life eternal as knowing the Father who sent Him and Him. You know God for who He truly is. You can experience paradise today, even when it's really cold outside. You can experience the awesomeness of God's life-giving to you and Him as God today. But you have to reach a point where you end rebellion. You have to reach a point where you say, I recognize the discipline that you've had in my life, God, and I'm returning to you. I'm following you. This is a huge part of Christianity and and one that I think often gets ignored is, is when you follow Jesus, you're no longer the shot caller. When you follow Jesus, you don't get to say what's right and what's wrong, but He does. When you follow Jesus, uh, you don't get to come up with some other version of, of God, of deity. You recognize He's God. You lay down your life before Him. When Jesus, Jesus said, if you want to follow me, take up your cross. Who died on crosses? Rebels. When you follow me, if you're going to follow me, You have to end your rebellion. You have to end it. You can no longer say in your attitude, I'm not not turning to you for right and wrong. And you you have to end the stiff arm and lay him down and allow him to lead. Any other version of Christianity is not a genuine version of Christianity. You have to surrender to him as Lord if you're going to experience the life that He can truly give you. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for who You are. I thank You for Your love and Your kindness. We may not be able to see love and kindness really easy when we read a passage like this. But You are also a promise keeper, and You told the nation of of Israel through the Mosaic Covenant that if if they followed You, they'd receive blessing. If they rebelled against You, they'd receive a curse or discipline. In Ezekiel chapter 5, we see the the play acting of that discipline. And we may look at that discipline and think, wow, that's really harsh. But the fact of the matter is that sin sin has very serious consequences. Rebelling against a king, something even bigger than a king, the true God of the universe, has big consequences. And so I pray that, that for those in the room who have not yet made a decision to end their rebellion against you, that today would be that day. I pray that they would lay down the false idea that they know right and wrong better than you do, and that they would lay down the idea that they need to stiff-arm you and push you away, but instead that they would invite you you haven't moved, that they would move towards you.
And God, I pray for the, the people who have made that decision. There are still areas in our lives where we, maybe we think we know better than you. We may not be able to verbalize that all the time, but there are still areas where you're showing us you haven't quite ended the rebellion in that portion of your life just yet. I pray that you would show us that, that you would reveal the places where we haven't yet laid down completely to the idea that, that you are our God and we are to follow you. And as you reveal those to us, that we would be children who long to end the continuing places where we haven't quite followed you all the way yet. God, may you give the people in this room a heart of hearts to know you and follow you. And if that involves some discipline, God, I pray that we would cherish the discipline. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.